This is that idea of good therapist conditioning. Good therapists are happy with the work that they're doing because it's emotionally fulfilling and we don't care about money. We're not in it for the money. We are somehow above money existing on the spiritual plane. Well, how about your bills though, right? It's very easy to pretend that we don't have to deal with this reality, but we do. And then when we see our fellow therapists or other service providers who are charging enough money to pay their bills and then have some, we're so quick to judge them and jump on them and say, see, you don't really care. You're a problem. You're a bad therapist. Hey there. And welcome to The Bad Therapist Show, the podcast for current and aspiring private practice therapists who want to earn more money, work less, and have a way bigger impact. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist, former goody-goody therapist turned six-figure private practice owner and therapist business coach. I'm here to help you learn everything you need to know about private practice and expanding beyond the one-to-one model so you can earn more money and increase your impact as a therapist without burning out or hustling. Using my proven liberated business method, therapists at all stages of business have been able to grow their income while becoming even better therapists. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. It's time for you to get your time back and enjoy being a therapist again. You ready? Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show. I'm your host, Felicia, The Bad Therapist, and today we're talking about how you can take a week off from seeing clients every single month, and yes, this still means you get to take longer breaks for holidays and vacations. I'll tell you exactly how to set up your practice so you can earn enough money to have time off, plus how to spend your time during your off weeks. So let's get into it. The first thing that has to happen is that you decide you get to do this. If you doubt that you get to do this, that there's something morally wrong with you being able to take time off and actually enjoy it guilt-free without creating some other difficulty in your life to balance it out, then it will be incredibly hard for you to make this happen. This decision is absolutely crucial. And it's a whole topic in and of itself, which is what my next episode is all about. So make sure to check that out. In this episode, though, I'm going to stick with the nitty gritty tactical information, but the mindset behind making this kind of move is just as important. For now, if that mindset feels a little bit like a stretch, I want you to act as if it might be true. And if you're listening right now and the change you want to make isn't taking a week off from work every week, but it is something like raising your fees or changing your working hours or basically anything else in your practice that you want, but you maybe feel a little weird or guilty about doing, I want you to know that what I'm going to go over today also applies to that. So keep on listening, even if the idea of taking a week off from work every month sounds nuts to you or just doesn't appeal to you. What we're going over today is incredibly useful. So that was the first step. Decide that you get to do the thing you want to do. Then you need to know what your desired take-home pay is, as well as your personal and business expenses. Now, it took me years to create a budget, aka write down my expenses and my income. I was so resistant to doing this. It was like every single time I would think to do it, I would just kind of shut down. So if that's you, I want you to know that you can still continue with this process. 
Even if you're feeling a little shut down, you can ballpark these numbers, but I would love for you to at least get close to this. Begin to engage at the level that you can engage. If you feel ready to pull out your bank accounts and your credit card statements and really look through everything line by line, that's fantastic. Please go ahead and do that. If that stresses you out, just me saying that out loud, don't worry about it. Ballpark it. Start with uh, an average number of what you think it might be. Maybe look at a few numbers, but I don't want you to feel like you have to stop this process just because you're not willing to do that. I have a tool that can help you with this. It's called the Bad Therapist Magic Sheet. So just make sure to grab that with the link in my description if you would like to use that tool as you're going through this and crunching the numbers. So we need you to know what your desired take-home pay is, what your business and personal expenses are, and how many clients you'd like to see each week. Once you have those numbers, then you will know what your fee needs to be so that you can have not just a week off from work every month if that's what you want, but so that you can have a caseload of any size you want. Maybe you're seeing 20 clients when what you'd actually like to be seeing is more like a dozen clients. This tool will also help you figure that out. Maybe you want to take three months off from work all at once and you want to see what that's like. Maybe you want to take a month off twice a year. Basically, once you have these numbers, you know, how many clients you'd like to see, how much money you'd like to be bringing home, we can figure out what you actually need to be charging. So you can basically do whatever you want, uh, including maternity leave or a sabbatical, an extended sabbatical or saving up for something else that you want to save up for. This tool will basically help you map all of that out. And once you have that, We can figure out exactly what you would need to charge during the three or four weeks a month that you're working in order to cover having a week where you're not bringing in revenue in your business. So it's very, very straightforward. This is not about ultimately about feelings. This is about math, which is something I talked about in my previous episode when I made the change from basing my fee solely on my sense of worthiness, which would fluctuate from day to day, also my sense of guilt and really got into numbers and began to engage with money as a tangible part of my reality, whether I liked it or not, that's when things really started to change for me. And that's why I want to share this tool with you that was so helpful in me moving through all of that resistance. So that's going to be really huge for you. Now, what you will probably find when you use this tool, when you crunch those numbers is that your fee needs to be higher. If you are working every single week in your practice and you're like, wow, I really love this idea of getting to take a week off every month, that would be amazing. You're probably going to discover that your fee would need to be higher in order to bring in that same amount of revenue. I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's just how math works. I'm sorry, I don't have a sort of like secret (laughs) roundabout way for you to be able to do this. I feel like so many therapists I work with are like, So how can I make more money without raising my fee? And I'm like, well, you can't, (laughs) especially if you don't want to see more clients, which for a lot of us is the case. We might be maxed out on the number of clients we want to, that we want to see, and we're really not willing to see more. So if that's where you're at, then the lever you need to pull is raising your fee. And that's, that's just the facts. If you want to create a scalable offer, that's absolutely an option for you. But I always encourage people to make sure your practice is running very efficiently before you add something else to your plate. Because the idea of 
passive income, like income where you just don't have to do anything is not, I don't want to say it's not real, but it's certainly not that at the beginning of creating it and getting it off the ground. So I don't want you to think like, well, my practice can just kind of humdrum along, but where I'll really make these changes that I want to make is when I create this other offer. That's just usually not what happens because whatever kind of ish you've got going on in your practice, whatever the blocks are that you have around money, it's not as if if you just create something new, those things are going to disappear out of nowhere. Like They will still be there, which means you're going to have to deal with them then. So I'd rather have you clean up your current business, do the mindset work and the spiritual work you need to do in the business you currently have. That way, when you create the next thing, it's got a really clean and solid foundation that you can build on top of. So what you're likely going to find when you crunch these numbers is that you do need to raise your fee. Now, this is where I (laughs) may lose you again, because there's not some like special alternative that, you know, we other therapists have been hiding from you that I'm now going to reveal to you. No, the answer is to raise your fee. And a lot of us do not want to do that for a few different reasons. What I'll hear people say is, well, I can't charge that much because clients won't pay that. And what that actually means is I'm not willing to do the marketing and develop the sales skills that I need to attract clients who would pay that. And also, I don't really trust people who would pay that much for therapy because, I mean, who has that kind of money? I wouldn't want to work with them anyway. And so this is the attitude we will sometimes have when we realize we need to be charging fees. We'll say, well, no one will pay that for therapy. One, that's just not true. And then we'll say, well, even if someone would pay that for therapy, oh, I wouldn't want them on my caseload. And underneath that statement is the belief that anyone who would pay you for that is not a great person or you wouldn't like to work with them. Basically, that you couldn't possibly work with somebody you would really enjoy working with or who you feel like really needs the help or you would find a lot of value in the work and have them pay you well. Like Those two things just don't go together. And this is very similar to what I was talking about in episode one, this idea that if you have money, you just must be bad. And I think we will not just see ourselves that way, but we will also see our potential clients that way. Well, I wouldn't want to work with anybody who would pay this much for therapy, which is kind of hilarious because we're basically setting ourselves up to just not get what we want. Like I will only work with people if there's some other downside. It's either has to be really meaningful work where I get paid nothing or kind of shallow work that isn't that fulfilling or interesting, but I get paid a lot. And what I want to say is there are clients you can work with where both happen, where you get paid well, enough to pay your bills, enough to take time off, enough to go on vacation, enough to whatever you want, and you can really enjoy the work. So if you have that belief, this is your encouragement to notice that that is going on under the surface and begin to bring that to the light and confront it. Because this is kind of similar to something I've heard people say, like, I wouldn't want to be a part of any club that would have me. And we kind of have that same attitude. Like, I wouldn't want any client who would actually pay me a fee that would allow me to earn enough money to enjoy my life. Like, that is what we're actually saying. We're also saying, I'm not willing to learn the marketing and sales skills to do it because that sounds scary. So the truth is not that people won't pay that. The truth is that we are unwilling to do the work so that we could have what we want. 
and we have beliefs about the people who would pay us well for our work. That's what we need to unravel here, and that's what's getting in the way. We tend to pay lip service to being all on board for people investing in themselves and doing the really hard work of therapy, spending the time and the energy on it. But when it comes to investing on the level of money, there's a huge taboo around that for therapists. And this doesn't just show up in how we think about our clients and our potential clients, but it can also show up in how we think about ourselves and how we invest in ourselves. Because you will hear therapists say, well, I wouldn't pay that much for therapy. I would never pay that much. Like we devaluate ourselves. We are often the first people to devalue our fellow therapists, judging them for having whatever fees they're having and judge other service providers for the fees that they have. And I think we really need to check ourselves around that because what we're really saying is I don't think human labor is that valuable. I don't think human labor should cost that much. I don't think people should be paid that way for their work. I personally don't agree with that on a conscious level. And I think that's a huge problem. But it's not just our fault. I mean, that's literally baked into our training. Most therapists have worked literally thousands of hours for free or very little money. So we have this, we're inundated with messages and not just messages, but like actual experiences that reinforce this idea that our labor is not worth very much. And then we reinforce that with each other. And this is that idea of good therapist conditioning. Good therapists are happy with the work that they're doing because it's emotionally fulfilling and we don't care about money. We're not in it for the money. We are somehow above money (laughs) existing on the spiritual plane. Well, how about your bills though, right? It's very easy to pretend that we don't have to deal with this reality, but we do. And then when we see our fellow therapists or other service providers who are charging enough money to pay their bills and then have some We're so quick to judge them and jump on them and say, see, you don't really care. You're a problem. You're a bad therapist. The other kind of insidious belief that's underneath the surface is that emotional labor work, soft skills, these professions that are traditionally associated with women that women have done for millennia unpaid is still not worth much. That's a huge underpinning of how we see people in the care and service industries and the work that they do. That this work is inherently something we shouldn't even really be paying for. You know, like your mom does it for free, your sister does it for free, the lady who cuts your hair does it for free. There are all these ways that women have been doing this free emotional labor for years, and now that it's become a field of study, of rigorous study and practice, and people are licensed in it, that is still carried over. And so we really need to break down and investigate these underlying beliefs that are causing us to devalue our labor and the labor of our fellow therapists. The other implicit message that we're sending when we are judging other therapists or ourselves for wanting to make money is we're actually judging the client who may want to be investing in themselves in this way, because ultimately the money that the client is paying you for the service is all, is money that they're investing in their own well-being. And if the message that we're sending to the public is you're not worth more than $50 an hour, your mental health is literally not worth more than $50 an hour. What are we saying about how we value mental health, y'all? Like, seriously, we need to look at that. 
Okay, so if you've gotten on board with this, which I hope you have, and you've decided you get to have this, it is worthwhile, the next step is going to be to actually talk to your clients about these changes. And again, this can be the change around deciding you're going to take a week off every month and that, you know, again, your fee is probably going to change because of that. This could be about changing your schedule and letting the client know that you're going to be available at different times. Any change you want to make, this is really important, what I'm about to tell you in terms of how to actually have that conversation. Here's the key. Tell your clients that you are informing them of some changes to your practice and give them the opportunity to consent to the changes or not. As their therapist, you're also going to hold anything that these changes are bringing up for them using your clinical skills. This is completely different than how most therapists will share this information, uh, which is deciding that they want to make a change in their practice and then saying something along the lines of, would you be okay coming in three times a week and your fee increasing to whatever amount? So the difference between those two approaches is in one, you are informing the client of a change you have decided to make in your practice. In the other, you're asking the client basically if they'll give you permission to make a change. And that is not, nor is it ever, your client's responsibility. Your client is not in therapy to give you permission or not to go for what you want. This dynamic of how we therapists often approach our clients when we want to make a change reminds me of this story that a former client told me. She would come to our sessions for, with her baby granddaughter. She was a toddler. And this was back when I worked at a methadone clinic. So um, she would often be like caring for her granddaughter. And so her baby granddaughter would come to her sessions. And one thing that she shared with me was never give, in this case, a kid, but this is really true for anyone, never give somebody a choice that you're, you don't actually want to give them. So she gave the example of like, <laughs> parents will sometimes say to their kids, you can pick out your clothes today. And then the kid comes back with this outfit where you're like, oh my God, why why did I agree to this? They literally cannot go outside dressed like that. It's either not the right weather or maybe they need to be wearing more clothing or less clothing or whatever. And what she said was, if you want to give a kid the option to dress itself, pick amongst a few options that you as the adult would be okay with and let them choose the things with amongst those options that they want to choose. Don't give them an option that you're just going to yank away in the end. And I think this dynamic is something that's really helpful to think about how we're presenting changes in our practices to our clients. Asking your client if they're okay with a change, ultimately you do need their consent. Ultimately, they do need to be okay with it. But you're not asking them if they approve of the change, although you may be. I know I have. I know I have approached some of these conversations with the kind of sense that I was looking for approval and permission from my client. And you know what? That doesn't go very well. And it also puts them in like a really, really weird spot where like, I don't know, it's just really not their job. If we're feeling like insecure about what we want, getting that reassurance from our clients, well, that's just not the place to get it. The place to get it is, you know, from a person like me, <laughs> who's your coach. It is not the client's job to help bolster us to make the decisions we really want to make. So when we're going to them with this information, with these options, the options we need to be giving them are the options that they can actually choose amongst that are going to feel good for us. Now, 
sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. For instance, you may say, here are the options for what you can pay me. Here is the top of my scale. Here is the bottom of my scale. You may, to your best ability, choose an, a range that feels good for you, but then you'll have a client who will pick a number in that range and you may feel like, mm, actually, I don't, that doesn't feel good for me. I'm realizing that range was not a range that really works for me. Or maybe you've just done the magic sheets and you're like, whoa, that range really, really does not work for me. Hey, no harm, no foul. You didn't know what you didn't know, but it means you need to update the range of options that you're giving your clients. So be really thoughtful about that and don't give your client an option that you are not actually okay with them taking. Because what happens when you do that is the client and you make an agreement about something and then you are unhappy with the result. This can be tolerated for a while, especially if you're a good therapist. And when I say good therapist, I mean that in quotations. You know, if you are drinking that good therapist conditioning Kool-Aid, then you can probably get by on an agreement that doesn't really work for you for a while. But eventually, if you are running your entire practice that way, you're going to get resentful. You're going to feel drained. You are going to hear your client say things like they're going on vacation and then feel really annoyed and you're going to wonder why that's happening, right? I want you to set up a practice in which your clients could tell you that they just won a million dollars and you would genuinely be totally happy for them. You wouldn't feel jealous at all because you were doing such a good job of keeping your needs at the forefront of how you were running your business. And for a lot of us, that's just not true. We will make agreements with our clients that lead to us feeling resentful because we're afraid of feeling guilty. We'd rather feel resentful than feeling guilty. So we make decisions that lead to that. And then our clients will share things and all of a sudden we're feeling frustrated and annoyed. If that's happening to you, then you know that you have made an agreement that isn't actually working for you. So when it comes to making changes in your practice, do not phrase the sharing of this information as if you are asking for permission. Rather, inform the client of the decision you have made and ask if they consent to that. If the decision you're making includes a range of options that the client can actually choose from, let them know that range of options and make sure that that range of options is a range that you actually feel good at regardless of what they choose. And a way that you can think through this is by imagining that range of options before you share it with the client and imagining them answering, like choosing different options. And notice how you feel. Is there any point along that range where you feel disappointed or angry or hurt or used? If that's happening with one of those options, then that option has to go. It doesn't belong in there because that's not good for you. It's certainly not good for the clinical relationship. And ultimately, it's going to get in the way of you serving this client effectively. So that option has got to go. So that is key. <laughs> you are informing the clients of your decision. You are not asking for permission. Something I want to normalize about changing the frame of your therapy, the agreements that you make with your clients, is that it is normal whenever you're adjusting the frame for that to not work for some people. Because when they started therapy, y'all made a certain set of agreements together, and now you're coming to them and saying, hey, I'm needing to change these aspects of how we work together. Do you consent to those changes or not? 
And it's normal for some people to say, no, I don't. That actually doesn't work for me. I made an agreement to work with you in this way. And this change doesn't work for me. That's normal. That does not mean that you can't find people out there who will work with you and be happy to be a part of your practice within the parameters that you have chosen. So I want you to know that it is normal for there to be a little bit of uh, like shaking of the tree. Like some of the leaves are going to come off as you're, as you're spreading and growing and creating a new form of showing in your practice. I have also seen therapists make some pretty big changes in their practices and have a bunch of their clients stay. I remember having a client in Liberated Business, a therapist, who dramatically raised their fees and really expected that everyone was going to quit and leave, and that's just not what happened. So there is a huge range of possibilities for how this can play out if you were to make a change in your practice, but I want you to know that if that happens, that does not mean if people leave, it does not mean that you have chosen incorrectly. It just means that the next step for you is going to be to learn how to market your practice and how to uh, improve your ability with cells so you can have people in your practice who want to work with you under those parameters. Now let's say you've made these changes, you've informed your clients that you're adjusting the frame, the people who are staying are staying, the people who are leaving are leaving, you're working on getting new folks in your practice, and now you have this week off every single month, what are you going to do with it? So I have some ideas for you because ultimately we don't want this week to just be a week off where you find yourself getting busy in other ways, or you leave at the end of the week and you actually don't feel like you had a week off. You don't feel like you were restored. We want this to be a really effective week for you. So here are some things that I really suggest you do with your time. First, have a CEO date. This is a lot of fun. And this is where you get to step out of the employee role in your business and put on your CEO hat. This is the time to tap into your visionary, creative self and make the really big decisions that are within the realm of the CEO. Now, for a lot of therapists, we can go our entire careers really just acting like employees in our own businesses and never really stepping into that CEO role. And again, this is the difference between being entrepreneurial and being self-employed. I would say most therapists are self-employed. They're not thinking of their businesses from an entrepreneurial perspective. They're thinking of their businesses only as a way to meet their most basic needs and sometimes not even that. Having a CEO date is where you step into that entrepreneurial self. This is where you're making the big decisions. This is where you're getting to be really creative. This is where you're assessing different risks and you're getting to vision into the future. So have a date where you do that. This can look a lot of different ways. There's no set time that this needs to happen or part of your week that this needs to happen, but I do want you to schedule it and I want you to do something that kind of symbolizes that you're stepping into the CEO. So that can be really the perfect thing for you. It can be anything. Maybe it's pr putting on a certain outfit. Maybe it means your CEO date is over a nice meal at your favorite restaurant. I love going to museums and like taking my laptop and sitting around beautiful art. And that would be a great place for me to have a CEO date. So it really doesn't matter what exactly it is, just as long as it's something for you that symbolizes that you're getting to step out of the employee role of your business and into that CEO level self. 
The second date I want you to have is a date with your money. Now, it would be really easy to just make your CEO date and your money date the same date, but money is such an important topic and one that I have had to do so much healing around, and my guess is you do too, because let's face it, we all have stuff around money that we need to heal. So I want you to have a date that is just with you and your money. So if you have an altar, clean it off completely, take everything off of it, clean the surface and reset it. Pay attention to what you want to put on that altar. You do not have to just like put everything back on. You don't have to follow anything prescriptive. Just add things that feel abundant for you, whether that's things that have a certain color. If you're in the US, you're probably going to want to put some green on there. Uh, anything that feels lush or luxurious or anything for you that just evokes a sense of security, safety, flow. We want you to see that and represent it on your altar. Also, clean out your wallet. Take it all apart, pull everything out, see if there's anything that needs to be thrown away or shredded, anything that you're going to keep, put it in very neatly and make it look really pretty. You may even like clean off the wallet yourself. This is a practice that I learned from the money witch who was one of the money mentors that I've been following for a long time. And I, that's another thing. Spend some time finding people out in the world who are talking about money in a way that actually feels good to you. That was a huge change that I needed to make around my relationship with money. Cause remember that for me, having money equaled bad. And so I had to be very intentional about finding people who were talking about money in a way that actually felt good to me because I had to find ways to confront the belief that money just equals you're a bad person. I had to find people out there that literally were evidence that that was not true. So spend time on your money date looking for people who are talking about money in a way that is very uplifting for you, that aligns with your values, and that helps you feel inspired And like you can work with money in a way that's actually going to be really generative and not harmful. When you're putting things back on your altar or in your wallet, as you're doing that, express gratitude for every card you have, every bill, every coin, the things on your altar, and spend some time looking at your bank accounts, credit card statements as well. Get intimate with your money. This was something else that I started doing earlier on in my money healing journey. I had this habit of just like, closing my eyes and pretending like my bank account wasn't there, which led to all sorts of problems. So something I started doing regularly was looking at the money in my bank account. And that led to a bunch of other changes. But just that initial willingness to look at it uh, was the beginning of me starting to become more intimate with my money. So if you're not already doing that, this is a great thing to do on your money date. Finally, near the end of your week, schedule something that's going to leave you feeling really restored and refreshed. And this is important that it's at the end of the week because later on when you're thinking back on your integration week, your week off, you're going to remember the things that happened at the end of the week a little bit more than the things that happen at the beginning of the week. And having something that feels really restorative and refreshing at the end of the week is overall going to make your integration weeks or weeks off feel more potent and like a better use of your time. So maybe that's a massage or a nice hike or a cozy night at home with your partner watching a movie or a fun night out with your friends. It doesn't really matter what it is. Again, it gets to be the exact right thing for you, but really prioritize that and make sure it's in your calendar. 
So these are the three dates that you are going to have during your week off, your integration week. This is a practice that I have implemented in my own business and that many of the therapists that I've worked with have implemented in their businesses. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now you know how to make the money you need while taking a week off from your practice every month. You also know how to tell your clients about this change without accidentally making it their responsibility to give you permission. And finally, you know what to do with your glorious week off so you come back to work actually feeling refreshed. I hope you're feeling inspired and empowered to create the practice you want, whether that's taking a week off every month, decreasing your caseload, bringing in more money, or literally anything else you can dream of. I know you can do it. Make sure to grab my Magic Sheets tool to use during your money dates and keep listening to learn how to enjoy your new and improved practice guilt-free. That's all today for The Bad Therapist Show. Thanks so much for hanging with me. I hope you got some gems that you can start using right away in your own business so that you can break out of good therapist conditioning and build the business that you want. If you've gotten something out of this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with one of your good therapist friends who really needs to hear it. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and or review so that we can change not just our individual businesses, but transform the mental health system that got us here in the first place. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for more private practice and coaching tips. Remember, bad therapists make the best therapists.